UX Podcast Episode 105. Hello and welcome to UX Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbom. And we're balancing business, technology, and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. Today, we have a triple whammy of interviews for you. Yes, three awesome interviews we did at UXLX. With, uh, we've got Nicole Fenton, Alistair in- Somerville. Yeah, you said- Sorry, I was going to say Nicole Fenton. That's um, Interface Writing. Yes, that's her book. Yep. Uh, uh, and uh, Alistair Somerville. Yep, Designing Wearable Experiences. And uh, Mike Atherton. Uh, structured content modeling, and we get um, quite a bit into linked data. Yeah, and uh, there is a common theme here. I'm is not. Sh- I'm not sure you've picked up on it, James. There is a common theme, but I'd like for oh, our listeners well, or you who are listening to think about. Well, and me, because I haven't picked up on it. So you know, it's a challenge for me too. Now I've got to work it out. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that a bit more after the interviews. Exciting. <laughs> Nicole, tell us a bit uh, about who you, how you got into this area and uh, what you work with. Sure. So um, I'm, you know, I'm I'm a writer by trade. I started. I have an English degree. Um, when I got out of college, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this English degree because I didn't want to do, you know, advertising writing or uh, writing fiction or short stories. So, um, you know, I thought about what was the like, what was the best company that I could work for that I respected and um, so I ended up applying to Apple and that was like my first job out of college was Mm. like being a writer at Apple and writing training and documentation and internal communications and like customer support stuff so I kind of come from um, before I started working on interfaces like what do you need to say to the customer like what Mm. are the worst scenarios that you need to kind of like resolve and what can you say that's useful and Um, kind over the phone or in an email Um, and then I eventually moved into working on Mm. websites and huge products and translation projects and all these Mm. kinds of like bigger content problems because you you were um, you're working for Facebook as well uh, I worked I worked at Facebook yeah Yeah. I I worked at Apple Um, I've worked with a lot of like design agencies and um, clients Um, so I'm a consultant now but yeah, I kind of have a little bit of everything in my background. <laughs> hmm. And your passion seems to be caring about the people that you're actually writing for, that you're addressing and you're, you're talking to. Uh, and it really comes across. And you, you start out today's workshop with talking about how important it is to see people as they are and not uh, box them in. You were mentioning like the, the way we talk about people as if they're binary. They're either male or female. They're either married or single. But there's such a wide spectrum in between both of those that we l- really need to attend to and, and take seriously. Mm. Or of a cultural aspects oh, yeah. that are possibly more dominating mm. than um, mm. than just those 50-50 mm. splits that we use. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, I love working with mm. um, programmers and engineers and designers on systems. Mm. And I think the thing that's interesting about systems is actually when it gets messy, right? Mm. Like, what are those mm. funny little gray mm. areas that, that aren't yes or no or um, this or that? And I think, you know, if we really want to have a good user or human experience, we need to embrace the fact that people are messy and 
um, not everyone fits into like A or B um, or even a drop down menu, right? Mm. Um, so those are the places where I think language is actually really interesting because, you know, um, language is messy too. And it's like language is kind of an organic thing in itself and trying to figure out the right word for the right situation that can apply to as many people as possible is, is hard. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so I like that challenge of like being kind and clear and concise. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a big design challenge too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Farrell agree. Years of user usability testing have shown me at least that you know it's, it's single words in certain places that can cause something to fail or succeed um, because of the, the you as a person, what you've got in your mind when you visit a site or uh, or something like that to to do a certain task. Mm. If that keyword isn't in the right place at the right time, you're going to go you're going to miss it. Mm. Yeah, and if, you know, if it doesn't strike the right tone, it might offend you mm. or, you know, it might kind of ruin yeah. your day depending on like what else has happened to you that day. And, mm. you know, that was we were talking a lot about tone today and like finding the right tone for the reader situation. And I think the companies that get it right spend more time thinking about those things um, before they just put something out there that feels a little bit like stiff or rushed. Um, but, you know, it takes time and money to think about this stuff. So mm. Mm. Another thing you said, you started talking about, and as we all say, yeah, we always wait with the content till the last thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's so common. Uh, but then you also said, and, and what other people argue then, is you need to have content first, which yeah. is uh, what we say a lot. We do say mm. that, although we've adjusted it a little bit yeah. as well. But then you said, <laughs> it's neither or. Mm. I mean, it's, it's not content first or content last. You're supposed It's iterative. Yeah. Uh, the same as all the other roles that you have on the dev, dev team, really. Mm. Uh, if you work with design, it's iterative. When you work with development, it's iterative. And if you work with content, mm. that also changes over time. So you actually have to change it and experiment with it across the full length of the project uh, lifetime. Mm. Yeah, and mm. you know, it's like when you think of your company, your conversations change internally as your company grows and as your customer base changes, as your products change and you do new things and you try new things. So why should your content just be like one draft, mm. right? Um, I think a lot of people fail to embrace mm. the web that, you know, on a writing level that like you can publish something and you can change it. It's not a newspaper. It's not a magazine that goes out to, mm. you know, um, a newsstand and, and can't be corrected until the next issue. There's like a little bit of text, at the, you know, at the beginning of like mm. things they made a mistake. Um, and I think we're seeing journalists really embrace this now with, um, you know, you can see news diffs and corrections on news sites and oh, yeah, stuff. Yeah, when they yeah. kind of add something that, mm. oh, this article yeah, was like corrected at, f mm. at 1423 because we got this fact wrong or earlier. Or like new developments, yeah. you know. I think mm. some of the newer um, news sites are, are doing posts where it's almost like a live blog, oh, that's right? right? The live blogging it's during like an unfolding event. Yeah, Exactly. And I think, you know, that isn't necessarily the right thing for a consumer product company or something, mm. but I think... So many companies come up with a marketing strategy, ship something out, and that's it. And it's like they never incorporate changes when they learn something, or if that feature didn't really make sense, mm. they don't go back and like fix the marketing page. And mm. um, you know, I think even with something like a blog post, if you're talking about something you're you're learning, like you can go back and add to that, mm. um, or you can you can have a series of blog posts about that topic mm. and. So I do try to encourage people to think of 
content is something that's ongoing and needs to kind of change over time as you learn and yeah and be, be re reused and, and reapplied. And yeah. Um, I think that's that's an important thing with content strategies, like w learning, what's, learning what works and what doesn't work and building on it, doing something new or mm. improving what's, what's already there. Right, mm. yep. <laughs> Another thing that really, that you said in passing that really stuck with me was when we were talking about the Virgin America airline site and they had like a menu item that said, flying with us, I think, and you said it was that's really friendly, but I would probably never click it. And the interesting thing about that is that you actually the friendliness of the site can come across in the copy and in the links even though you're not clicking them. So the purpose is not to click them, but the purpose is to give them this air of friendliness, which is really interesting then, mm -hmm. that there's another purpose to your links. Yeah, yeah and mm. I think in that instance, I wouldn't click it because I don't need to mm. read marketing about an airline that I'm mm. familiar with, but the marketing team has decided mm. they need this page about mm. their flying experience, mm. right? And so the fact that they thought about how does how do we make this marketing page fit in with the rest of our language which mm. is really colloquial and it's not casual but it's friendly and it sounds like you know an American said it mm. um, I think that that's like really thoughtful because otherwise it would just stick out as a dry marketing page that was like shoved into the navigation you know but it feels like part of the family exactly yeah, no, I'm just thinking, I, think I just saw an exam example of some navigation, some top navigation um, last week, where they'd, they'd got the single word or the two word uh, navigation labels for the big categories. Mm. And then underneath, in smaller text, was actually something a bit more wordy and a bit more explanatory and a bit, a bit softer, I guess, than the kind of more mm. pushy word that tries to get you into the mm. silo of the website. Mm. I quite liked. I'm not, not tested it or done myself, so I don't know if it works yeah. really well, but it felt nice when I was looking at it. Yeah, it, I mean, it definitely can help, especially if the, the bigger term is either a really common term and it's kind of dry or it's like foreign like mm. to the reader, right? Mm. It's like a new term. And then it's like, here's kind of like a short translation of what you're going to be doing when you click behind this. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would be great if they could just have one term, but if if two work together and they can do it consistently in the design, it's like... There's no mm. reason that that's wrong or anything no. like that. Yeah. As long as you get across that feeling again that mm. you care. Yes. But then you actually have to actually do care <laughs> as well. I mean, it's not just <laughs> faking that you care. That's, yeah. And that's an important point, I think, as well. That, um, people talk a lot of, oh, okay, so what's the tonality of our website? But I think you really need to have the people on site working with the website who have that personality because it's really hard to fake something. Yeah, and that's mm. where it's mm. safer yeah. for, like, you know, a company like mm. SAP or Oracle or something. Mm. Like, they don't need to pretend that they're going to hold your hand, right? Mm. They're not giving you, like, a very personalized experience through a gate-to-gate -gate kind of, like, airline thing. Mm. But I think on a consumer experience, it's, mm. like, that's a better place to show you care. If mm. you do, you know, and if you don't, like, keep it neutral mm. and simple and clear and... Some companies, it's like they don't really care. They just want to make money, and that's mm -hmm. <laughs> that is mm -hmm. what it is. But um, as long as the language is like reflective of that organization's like truth, I think that's yeah, kind of the writer's goal is to, yeah, to their tell core the values. truth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you're if you're a passionate organization for some reason, I mean, you could be a um, interest organization, so mm. like a charity or something. Then um, you you might need to make sure that that or you would need to make sure that that passion for the cause that you have comes across in your writing yeah charity water does a yeah. really good job at that mm. um if you need it <laughs> 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 they always come to mind i, I like yeah. their work a lot 
So what are some more uh, sources for inspiration? You mentioned a, there's a talk on your website. Oh, um, so there's a talk called Interface Writing Code for Humans, which is kind of a more personal look at the stuff we did in the workshop today. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit about like how I got into thinking about language and computers as a kid and stuff. Um, so that's a good place to start. And it does have practical information mm. at the kind of the latter half. Mm. It's like my style to tell a story mm. and then get practical. Mm. Um, but in terms of like broader inspiration of like how I work and stuff, yeah. um, I think for me, I, I'm, I am a content person, but I kind of think of myself as a generalist. So I like to read about design and um, I like to see what's happening in the art world and I like to you know read fiction and nonfiction and keep up with um, you know what are my friends learning about I, I'm not like a front-end developer mm. but I I like having conversations with people who mm. are doing other things on the web um, so yeah, I'm a big reader I guess is like one summary um, I don't know I just I am y you mentioned like you know it was clear that I care um, my husband often says, you know, he thinks that I care more than most people. And I don't mean that as like a humble brag. It's just mm. like, I do think that caring is like a big mm. part of um, my work and that I, I'm generally just inspired by those small moments that you can have mm. with a person and like make their day a mm. little bit better. Mm. And that's why I do this stuff. It's yeah. not like <laughs> for fame mm. or a fortune, you know, mm. it's like, um, just knowing like at the end of the day, if I made one little piece of text or process or system better, that it's like, that's, that multiplies is like, I really like just helping people. And like, mm. some of that is just like hearing what's bothering them and mm. trying to like find a way to mm. open the door a little bit. Yeah. So a message to listeners, I think would be experiment more and set aside time to actually talk about the content with your team. So specifically the content and not anything else, that'd be awesome. For sure. Yeah. Mm. When you asked about like content first, I think the reason that I'm kind of against that approach is like in a big redesign, yes, content kind of needs to come first or at least kick off first. But when you're figuring out design decisions and, and tone and direction and color and all those things, like they need to play with the content. And that again is kind of why I, I feel uncomfortable with just saying, go write this thing and we'll put it up on the website. Um, because I do write, I write in the browser, you know, I write, I write something in a, a text file and then I see it in the browser and I change it because things read differently mm. yeah. on the web than yeah. they do in a text box or on a piece mm. of paper. Mm. So, you know, I think it's good to start thinking about the content early in any project, but also like I encourage writers to sit with engineers and to sit with designers and to really like be willing to have a conversation because that's what makes the content better is having conversations and then making it feel like a conversation for the user. Mm. Good advice. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us, Nicole. Thank, Thank you, you so Nicole. much. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Okay, we're standing here with Alistair Somerville, a, a very tired Alistair, I think. Uh, I'm better now. <laughs> he's, had a he's had a little nap. Yeah. We're okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you had a workshop this morning. Uh, it was called, James? It was called uh, Designing Wearable Experiences. And I saw a few tweets from it. Uh, it was g this guy was blindfolded and people were touching him. and <laughs> It seemed really exciting. Uh, tell us a bit more about who you are and your background. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, my background is in 
designed for people with physical and cognitive impairments. So mostly my work's in particular in museums designing exhibitions or designing interpretation where we're moving information across modalities, i.e. designing tactile from visual, designing sound from text, designing graphics from text, all those sort of these, the switching and moving across senses mm -hmm. because people might have an impaired sense or they might have um, an inability to process well certain sensory inputs. Mm -hmm. So I come from that area and it's just in the last few years that sort of now that UX is coming near sort of what's described as post-screen UX, the idea that it's not just about the screen, mm. that that therefore means that it's encountering a lot of the issues that I've encountered over my career, which is right. how does a person sense information and how does a person actually process that information mm. cognitively. Mm. Yeah. So the workshop, and the reason the workshop is very, very experiential is because I need to push people through physical experiences, sensory experiences, mm. to get them to understand what the meaning of it is. Mm. I can't oh. just explain it. No, you, need to, you need to push them yeah. beyond their normality into well, a different type of normality for them to yes. get into the workshop. Because it's, it's very easy to be so trapped in the idea that everything's visual. Mm, yeah. And you know the way that the design operates, the way that the technology operates, it's, it's very, very flatly visual. But mm. when you go into the other senses, A, you have greater opportunities, but B, you also have massive levels of complexity in terms of the way the senses can clash mm. with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's that sort of trying to discuss the uncertainties and trying to give people better questions for how to deal with the complexity is what, what I'm trying to put across at the moment. Mm. I heard someone trying to explain to me, because I was talking to people about your workshop, uh, neither James or I attended, uh, that they were opening up to the realization that the reality that we're seeing is not really reality. Of course, it's always our interpretation of reality. Uh, and I've, uh, that thought has been coming across in a lot of lots of the psychology books I've been reading lately is that everything is just an interpretation and if you realize that uh, then you realize that all of us are seeing different worlds all the time even in the way i think the uh, even the, the dress that was uh, floating around twitter well, yes, a does couple exist. of months mm. back the gold uh, or white dress or was it blue and black mm. uh, and people just saw it differently mm. uh, and th that was like an eye opener for a lot of people around the world i think mm. yeah. i just from reading mm. listening about thinking about them um, does color exist mm. a topic mm. of the, a few weeks ago about because yeah. we it's just a visual it's just a way that we deal with the frequencies coming into our eyes mm. so so what's blue i mean it's actually not blue at all it's just a frequency mm. that our brain has received and then pass mm. the signal that it's received that frequency so how we see blue mm. and do you stop seeing blue when you're not receiving the frequency it's, it's fascinating how these things but get taken so in and moved so around. How do, we approach, <laughs> how do you approach these realizations? How do we what, what problem are we, are we trying to solve and what tools can we use to solve them? I mean, the, the air is... Because, I mean, what, what you come across is, and as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the two solutions, I mean, they're not complete solutions, but they're at least setting out the possibilities and you know, trying to deal with this uncertainty is, mm. one, there is actually a solution which is in front of everyone and which is already used but we misname it so the accessibility settings mm -hmm. they're buried away and yet the accessibility settings are actually how we deal with sensory load they're the way in which we enable 
people to personalize their experience. So right. instead of saying this is for people with an impairment, mm. we say, look, this is for everyone. Mm. Yeah. And allow, and so bringing up all of the design work, all of the sort of the stuff that W3C and other mm. people have done, mm. and saying, look, this is actually how we create personalized sensory experiences. Mm. Instead yeah. of treating as it for a group, we say, look, mm. this is for everyone. Mm. So the stuff yeah. already is in there. Yeah. It's just that we think of it as for being a group of people right. rather than for all of us. Yeah. Mm. The other one which is, which is interesting and which I do mm. sort of um, talk about in the workshop and mm. I, I do link out to is, is there is work which is in occupational therapy. So there's books like um, Living Sensationally Mm. by Winnie Dunn, mm. where within that there's questionnaire systems which have been developed, I mean they're, they're perfectly good scientific questionnaire systems about how to actually tease out the sensory needs of an individual. Because mm. it's this, this person, you know, the fact that we have to get quite micro mm. in terms of what the experience of the person is and what we're trying to tease out of the user in terms of yeah. user testing. So it's possible to use questionnaires which are able to give you an idea of both the conscious and unconscious mm. sensory needs mm. and dislikes of a person. Because a, a lot of the time, another one of the complexities people have issues with is you're not dealing with a unitary individual sense of a person. You're dealing with their conscious and their unconscious, and it's, it's in flux. So the questionnaires are developed to try and actually clarify how a person may actually have a desire for sensory um, experience, but actually right. have an unconscious avoidance. Ah, that kind of collision. and that creates issues. Wow. Well, yeah. So you've got an internal mm -hmm. conflict. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. and mm -hmm. that's where the ability to be able to adjust the information load, to adjust the volume, mm -hmm. whether it be in terms of sound, but also mm -hmm. in terms of color, in mm -hmm. terms of the size of text, in terms mm -hmm. of all of these other things, or complexity, maybe all of those things. Yeah. Yes, if you can adjust. If you can adjust those through the, what I would say is to say rename accessibility is mm. you know, hyper personalization as I think IBM call it okay um, that concept that you can mm. enable people to enhance their experience that's that's where you have a possibility fascinating stuff yeah uh, and I, I love that what you, I mean I, I talk a lot about accessibility as well and just the fact that there's so much research already done there but and it you realize that everything that's done for accessibility purposes benefits everybody but people aren't very quick to adopt it of course for this for the reasons you're saying that it's still called accessibility so you don't need to identify with that label of stuff i think it's also mm. interesting again that some more um, psychological aspects are coming into the work we're doing we've, mm. we've picked this up a lot over the years now that we're mm. getting more and more mm. crossover between um, these more traditional areas of research that have been mm. and realizing that, that we were bumping up against them mm. and how it can be applied and, yeah. and, and thought about. I mean, I mean, the workshop also merely to give people an idea of the expanded area we deal with. So, I mean, within the workshop, the final hour deals with neuroplasticity and concepts of mm. sensory substitution and augmentation, i.e. the fact that the technology changes us and we change the technology, mm. that we can become different. Huh. Yeah, um, yeah. Which, which again, a lot yeah. of people fear, yeah. and yeah. a lot of people also get trapped in talking about transhumanism. And yet, there are ways of talking about it which are interestingly mm. human. Yeah. yeah, now that is that's fascinating. The whole feedback loop mm. that we we feed, we, we use something that feeds us that we feed back to it. We, we talked about um, science fiction um, interfaces mm. um, a few years ago. 
Uh, two guys who wrote a book about it. And I science haven't read the book. Yeah, yeah. Make it, so <laughs> it is very good. It is, yeah, and just that <laughs> feedback loop that science fiction in <laughs> itself has to take mm. everyday situation, our current, our current mm. world into account to make itself believable. Mm. But then it does it a little bit mm, kind of futuristic so that we then start to expect things to work mm. as science fiction does. So you feed back in our daily reality and then back around again. And we get the inspiration so from there. Yeah. yeah, and a film from that, the 90s maybe mm. isn't believable anymore because we've moved on. So if people want to learn more about this, or where can we point them? Books, um, websites? I mean, the website. my website mm-hmm. is sensoryux.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very heavily on Twitter at um, acuity underscore design. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of what I do is also... I mean, mostly all my slides and stuff are on SlideShare as well, so it's fairly easy to come across my stuff. And as I say, I also chat on Twitter, so yeah. um, any of those places. Love that. Excellent. Thank, thanks so much for joining us. Thank for you, Alistair. Sure. Thanks. Mike Atherton has been kind enough to join us in our little room where we're sitting uh, doing our podcast at UXLX. And... Uh, Mike, you've done a workshop. You've done the talk yesterday. Structured um, yeah. content modeling you did as a workshop. Um, That's right. On yeah. day one. And then um, yesterday we got to listen to you talk about um, designing with linked data. Mm. Yeah, two very kind of interlinked subjects that are very close to my heart. Um, structured content or content modeling being about um, starting the design process with um, thinking not about interfaces or sketching or anything like that. Well, maybe it is sketching, but not sketching... Uh, a UI, but it, but in fact sketching an abstract model of how a subject hangs together, breaking it down into its constituent um, things uh, and the relationships between those things. So in the case of, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big uh, Disney theme park fan, mm-hmm. um, and you know, within a theme park, you've got the the resort, and that's got uh, some attractions, and that's got there within the lands, and it's also got restaurants, and the attractions been created by a creator. Um, and some, you've also got characters that appear in attractions and appear in the restaurants and things like that. And so by connecting those things together, you're sort of building up this mental model of how a subject works. Um, and you can use that to then inform any later design process because you're expressing those things um, really actually at the database level um, so that you can create any number of interfaces that, um, that, uh, that express those that that structure of that of that subject. Yeah. When when would you see that coming in to to um, a, a process, a design process? Really upfront. I mean, we start any UX process with a lot of user research, right? Mm. Which is about on understanding um, a user's world. Um, it's ultimately about you know what they consider to be important and what problems we can solve for them. But you know, whenever we go in and we do a bit of contextual inquiry or some task analysis, what we're trying to get is a is a an abstract picture of what their world looks like. You know, all the things that that they consider important and the names that they give to those things and how those things relate to one another. So it's really the the, the basis of any kind of design process. Mm. Mm. What is the problem we're trying to solve here? Why why do we put so much effort into this content structuring? Um, these days, of course, uh, uh, our content has got to be available across all kinds of devices, right? So many things. Uh, there's, you know, w- there's not only websites, but native apps. There's now watch apps. There's things, on, I've done things on TV platforms and any number of devices that we've not yet thought of. Um, so it's really important that uh, whenever we present our content, our information, um, it's structured in a way 
that allows those its relationships to other pieces of content uh, to travel with it. Mm. Uh, and so we can more easily create any number of interfaces on top of that. Mm. Oh, this is the this is the, the linked data aspect. Um, well, that too. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. So so linked data and indeed linked uh, open data, so the openly licensed mm. version, um, is this idea of um, information data sets uh, available from various providers around the world. Um, you know, from universities and healthcare. Um, organizations and indeed places like Wikipedia and the BBC and NPR um, to open up and New York, New York Times is another one uh, to open up their data sets um, and make uh, information available in a sort of raw format that people can uh, remix and restructure and create new products out of mm -hmm. that those original uh, data providers haven't even thought of. It's kind of outsourcing your innovation in a way. Mm. Or, in, or enhance something you've already got. That, yeah, that's right. Didn't you give the example of the uh, BBC's... Oh, that's going to move the other way around. Oh, no, it wasn't. Cause they took you, your example was that they took in the, the data about music that had been played yeah, from another yeah. site to add another extra... So it's going back a couple of years now, but the, um, the BBC wanted to make a, a music product and mm. um, uh, have uh, pages on, on their website that represented any music artist that was played out on the radio because they really wanted to get more people listening to the radio. Mm. Um, and so they well, also had it must have been also the fact that they saw that there was um, people were asking what was that song you played oh, yeah oh I mean, totally so, so that, we flip that, it round yeah, yeah of course right. they want to increase relationship but at the same time they must have uncovered or must have noticed that there's a lot of requests over the years of people writing in can you play that song again you yeah. played last Friday thinking how it used to be in the in, back in the day and John Peel would play something and then you'd, you'd, you'd have to write to John no. Peel and say you know that, that weird beepy music you played on the 22nd of June you know, what I, was I, it I did write to him once <laughs> you know, I've been written to a few times yeah <laughs> um yeah so so that's no that's exactly right so so you know only the bbc had some of that data they had a record of every record uh, a record of every record that was, <laughs> that was played out on air um and they had um some stuff you know they, they knew when that band was on the tv and that kind of thing but they didn't have like discographies they didn't mm. have a biography of the band or the artist or anything like that um, but that, that rich metadata around the, the, yeah, the track. Yeah, yeah that, so, so, but using this idea of linked data, they, they were able to connect to a couple of other sources, one being Music Brains, which is mm. a great um, online sort of music database, mm. uh, and the other being um, uh, DBpedia, which is a sort of robot-readable version of Wikipedia, mm. uh, and create this mashup product that took that radio playlist data, took a biography from Wikipedia, took the discography from Music Brains, and put it all together mm. in a product that now sort of lives on the, on the BBC. And it's, and it's great the point that you make there about um, you know, it being useful also for you know, what was that song that was last played mm. on the air. Mm. And this is, this is the great thing about starting from the content and the data. Mm. Once you put those relationships in place, you can emphasize and choreograph that content into in any kind of inf interface that makes a bunch of different products. Right. I think uh, I'm I, I quite a little bit excited as well about the whole linked data and things you can mm. do with it because it's such a great enabler. Um, back in Sweden, um, I, I know someone who works with an insurance company there, and they've recently um, put their um, accident data 
oh, out there. Yeah, yeah. Where basically where whereabouts they know whereabouts accidents happen and what type of accident it was, whether it was a cycle accident, a pedestrian mm. who got knocked over, or a car crash, and so on. And they've they've used this to show um, about like cycle accidents and things in your area. So it's on a it's a mashup on a map, and you can see where things have happened. Mm. And the idea is that they're going to encourage the other insurance companies to also open up their their data right. so you can have one map that shows mm. where they are so then maybe you as, as, um, as residents in a particular area can realise that that corner really is as unsafe as we thought it was yeah. right. kids yeah. get knocked down or people f- well, get knocked down there and start maybe mm. highlighting it to your council mm. or to you know, government and yeah. say do something here here's the data so you, you end up then, mm. it's an enabler on a much higher level than originally thought, where an insurance company mm. was just using it to price premiums. Now you're actually maybe reducing claims yeah. and also yeah. f- saving lives right. um, uh, just by releasing data. Oh, that's, that, that's brilliant to hear. I mean, yeah, I mean, but there's, there's similar mm. things happening in the UK with, mm. with services, these mashup services about crime figures or property prices or the correlation between prime figures and property exactly, prices. Yeah. And as you say, it's mm. like it, a lot of this data, it gets published not really knowing how it's going to be used, mm. but that's where the excitement comes from, is, is, is figuring out how to take these different sources and, and play with them mm. as, as, as uh, raw material. Yeah. And I think that was one of the points you were making yesterday. It's like you don't know what's going to happen, just right. combining different sources and, and magic happens. In yeah, some yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a great story about um, uh, Simon Willison and Natalie Down, the two founders of uh, Lanyard. Well, before they did Lanyard, they, they went away for a, a weekend uh, to, to have their own little hackathon. Mm. Um, and they took some uh, uh, data from uh, the Flickr API, from the BBC Wildlife Finder, from uh, GeoNames uh, uh, ontology, um, and from uh, Freebase, which is mm. another machine-readable sort of version of Wikipedia, if, if you like. And they made this product called Wildlife Near You, so oh. it could figure out where you are um, based on some kind of geo, geo IP, mm. yeah. and then show you um, photos and information and location data for where you could see your nearest llama or, or whatever. And, oh, wow. and they made the whole product out of nothing. They conjured it out of these sources of linked data, yeah. mm. um, which is... It's just you know, it's available to everybody, and I think the the magic is actually having the imagination to. So then you actually also have companies that are are sprung out of nothing, but they don't even have their own data. They yeah. just combine different sources, yeah. and then and that you have in your business model for that. Right, right. It reminds yeah. me there's, there was that thing floating around the internet the other week about how like Uber, the biggest yeah. com- the company, has no <laughs> cars and all these. Facebook, all the uh, biggest media company, has no journalists. And right, <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, right, and yeah. I didn't see that. That's so funny. And how you can yeah just make something out of nothing yeah. really. Yeah. There's one th- one thing though about linked, just linked data though that kind of concerns me. Just this whole thing with when you break it, yeah. When 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 someone yeah. you know, changes the URL on some resource or yeah. or upgrades their API or or decides to you know save money or yeah. something yeah. whatever excuse it is, and you 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 smash a whole load of different services across yeah. the board overnight or just over the second. Absolutely, and and we saw that uh, a couple of years ago. You remember when the U.S. government shut down? And actually, all their .gov websites shut down with it during that government shutdown. Mm. And it broke this network effect. It broke all the things that were being powered by that government Mm. data temporarily. And it's true. I mean, there's there's, there's two kind of, I guess, major... uh, you know, hot potato issues with linked data. Uh, um, and one is this brittleness of it. The fact that a lot of this stuff is is living on, you know, university servers or what have you. I mean, it's it might just go at any minute. 
Yeah. Uh, and the other is that there's really no policing of how accurate that information is, um, which is true, of course, of any content on the web. And mm -hmm. some might say, well, perhaps there shouldn't be any policing of it, and it's up to you. You use at your own risk. What a lot of companies do when the BBC um, ingests that linked data, it, it's, it makes for a nice story to, to say that it's actually being pulled live across mm -hmm. the web in real time. In fact, it's being cached um, on local servers to, to try and assuage this, this, this issue of, yeah. of, of mm -hmm. brittleness. You know. yeah. mm -hmm. So there, there's something I know that you can do in HTML and I was thinking about during your talk yesterday uh, with hyperlinks. Like you have the when when you do links, you have the relationship tag or relationship attribute. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And I tend to do that amongst the different like presences I have on the yeah. web. If I link to some of my like my Flickr page, uh, I do a relationship. And relationship equals me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Isn't it important to start thinking about doing that? In yeah, your absolutely. And and you know, y there's this you can absolutely, and you can use it to link to. Um, existing third-party ontologies. There's something called FOF, which stands for friend of a friend, okay. and it gives you a vocabulary to, to do those things, to have this kind of URL uh, that represents you um, and represents your hometown and mm. represents the company mm. that you work for. And then you can start mm. to um, build out the relationships between you and other people that you know um, using a vocabulary that, that tells you gives you some verbs like knows or lives in or yeah. works for, that mm. kind of thing. Um, and it's very easy to mark up that, that content. Yeah, an expansion of that, that mm. kind of real idea. Um, there's something called RDFA, uh, which is a sort of uh, embedded version of the resource description framework um, that you can put in the header of your HTML. Mm. Uh, and you can say, okay, this web page, this resource that I'm creating, this is about China. And I don't mean China plates, no. uh, and I don't mean China crisis. No. I mean uh, China, the country, uh, and I've identified it un unambiguously because I've, s I've referred to a shared identifier, something like a DBpedia mm. resource mm. that says this is unequivocally what, what, what this page is about. Mm. Cool. Fascinating. Oh, I could, we could actually go on talking for quite a long time, I feel. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Um, but I think we have to wrap it up there. Yeah. Right. Oh well, thanks guys. It's uh, it's great to talk to you and meet you after after so long being a listener. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's cool thanks to meet for you joining us. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. So, did you figure out what the common theme is then, James? I don't know about common theme, but I I I found a, a kind of flow between them. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you've got like um, Nicole is talking about um, you know, sculpting the words, um, finding the r the right voice for your your conversation, um, and then then we've got um, Alistair who's encouraging us to to go beyond the visual, and and explore or, or venture into the the other senses, and then hmm. finally at the end we've got um, Mike who was saying, well, yeah, we've we've got our content, but now can, we can link it together and to make even richer experiences, and you can create new experiences. So I, yeah, I kind of you know weaved in and out and um, and and could see that kind of flow between the um, interviews. Did I get close? Depends on how you look at it, but yeah, I guess uh, my, my common theme is actually accessibility and and uh, ah. thinking about people's needs in new ways. So 
so whereas Nicole is talking more about uh, caring about people's challenges and not having binary, thinking about people as binary, but as actually yeah. they have a lot of different qualities, whatever, however you're trying to put them into some sort of segment or silo. But And then Alistair is talking about uh, also moving across senses. So he's he's clearly the one who's more most... Uh, Clearly, clearly uh, into accessibility, Move, like think, not thinking about as much about sight, but also about the other senses. Uh, so, <clears throat> so that's all about dealing with sensory load and how much information we're coping with every day. So, and, and he's making the argument that we're actually accessibility is good for everyone. And then when so when Alistair is saying crossing over senses, Mike is basically saying crossing over data. And by making the data available, mm. as as Mike is, talk, is talking about, you actually make experiences more rich. Because mm. we can now see patterns and get insights that we pre previously did not did not actually. So my common theme was very much accessibility and how you can use all these aspects of what they're talking about into making a an experience that is useful for as many people as possible. Yeah, I can see I can see how you've tied that up though about accessibility. Um, I was focusing more on the the, the journey, but that's mm -hmm. kind of oh, it's a very similar thing. You're I think it the is journey actually. accessible. Yeah. Mm. I also like what what Nicole is saying about people are messy, uh, language is messy. It's really, we're, what we're always trying to figure out how to, how do we tag this and that, and how do we make language uh, approachable for everybody. Uh, but it's quite impossible in the end. But we we need to have a structured way of working. But we need to realize that we're not going to be able to satisfy every little. Uh, person out there because everybody's going to have some quirk or another that's going to stop them from, I don't know, understanding the content in the correct way. And then you have Alistair saying, well, if they don't understand it that way, maybe we can use other sensors uh, or other senses to, to help them understand it. Another common, um, um, well, not theme, another common aspect to all this is is the the iteration or the, or rather not leaving things as done you've got to keep on working with things and that, that ties into everything mm. all three interviews yeah, said i mean you, you can't just write your words your first draft and leave it um you can't just create a, a um, um audiovisual or a, a, a sensory experience and then just dump it there um and the same with information you can't just create one static piece of information you've got to link it to other items of data or even keep an api going you can't just shut things down everything's intertwined and needs to be constantly worked on yeah because if, if you're not changing it also the things i've talked about with mike there about tagging your contents you know who's your friend who's your boss where do you work all, all data like that that changes because mm -hmm. people are messy People are messy. They're not coherent. They change. So the data has to change as well as I change because yeah. we can't trust the data if it's not updated constantly. And uh, I'd love uh, for anyone listening to tweet uh, whatever they thought was the common theme <laughs> if they didn't agree with us. A good idea. Come with your suggestions mm. for, a, for a common theme. Um, the, uh, the links related to this show uh, will be on um, the website as well as an archive of all our previous shows. Um, that's uxpodcast.com. Uxpodcast, all one word. Um, I'm Beantin on Twitter, B-E-A-N-T-I-N, -E and um, that guy over there. And I'm uh, Axbom, Axbom on Twitter, A-X-B-O-M. <laughs> and together we are UX Podcast, all one word. Um, you find us pretty much everywhere there. Um, hope you've enjoyed this show, the fourth in our series at um, UXLX 2015. And um, join us next time. Thank you for listening. And remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.